Well, if, like me, you are sometimes a bit bewildered by this new world in which we live, this world in which so much uh, operates on the Internet and, and uh, old values about what costs money and what's free uh, leaves your head sort of in a spin, then I really encourage you to read a book which I have so enjoyed called Free, The Future of a Radical Price. Its author is Chris Anderson, and perhaps you know him from the bestseller, the Long Tail. He is the editor-in-chief of Wired magazine, and uh, he intimately understands uh, the, the world in which we now live and in which so much of our economy operates. And uh, in this fascinating book, he examines many of the ways in which we are coming to a new understanding of what it means for a given item or bit of information to be free and how, in fact, uh, it, it, it radically reshapes who's making money and how much money and in what ways and, and the ways both obvious and far from obvious in which all of our lives are really being enriched. And also, of course, some of the ways also in which old models are being radically disrupted and even eliminated altogether. Uh, I have never read a book that puts so much of this into clear perspective than this book, again called Free, the Future of a Radical Price. It's published by Hyperion. And we have the author, Chris Anderson, with us for the next few minutes to talk about his book. Chris Anderson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. What did I say that? Thank you. Uh, one intriguing thing you say at one point is that as a magazine editor of Wired, which is something you can buy on a newsstand and hold in your hands or, or read online, you are, in a sense, somebody who operates in both of these worlds, the old world of, of, of newsprint and paper and the online uh, world as well. Could you just talk for a moment about some of the intriguing ways in which your work as the editor of Wired is, uh, is made rather complicated by having one foot in each of those two worlds? Yeah. So, so you know, free is, is one of these concepts that seems totally counterintuitive, but is actually probably the model that you're using right now. Your listeners are listening for free, and it's supported with, uh, with advertising. So the idea that you can get something for free um, is, you know, is, is not a shock. What, what's is surprising is that the Internet extends that far beyond traditional broadcast media. What happens, you know, as, as a magazine, what happens when we go online is, of course, our websites are free because we want to achieve the largest possible audience. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have a same, the same monopoly over consumer attention we used to have. So we can't charge the same rates. So the question is, um, are you, you use free to get the, the largest audience and you sell lower rates, but the cost of the, if each individual page is so low that you can make money that way. Um, now, you hope that some people will convert to the print version, that's the premium version in the freemium equation, and then, they, uh, then there'll be more of a scarcity medium and you can charge more for it. But, so that's, that's the simple economic model. But then you get at these um, strange changes in, in consumer expectation. Like in print, we don't put a car ad next to a car review because that would be a conflict of interest and you know, people wouldn't trust us. And yet online, we do just the opposite. Of course we put a car ad next to a car review because that's relevant. That's exactly what Google does. So we're, 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 we're realizing that once you move online and don't have that same paid relationship, with your, with your subscribers. Instead, you have an attention re relationship. The rules all change. The economics change. And you know, we as a, the media industry, including various, very prominently newspapers, have got to figure out 
what our economic model is going forward. People like what we do, but we have to figure out how to pay for it. Hmm. I think some people will be very surprised when they pick up your book to see that Chapter 1 spends a lot of time with things like Jell-O and uh, Gillette razors. I mean, you are not afraid of really stepping back into what, <laughs> for a lot of your readers, probably feels like ancient history. It isn't quite ancient history, but you really are interested in, in giving us, at least to some extent, the long-term perspective on where this notion of distributing things for free really came from. Just talk yeah, for a moment know, about the relevance of that. Exactly. So the, you know, I started coming at this from economics and ended up looking at, 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 at really perhaps one of the most misunderstood words in the English language, certainly the most misunderstood four-letter word beginning with F. Um, it's, it's, the reason it's misunderstood is that its meaning has really changed from the 20th century to the 21st. We know free. We're, you know, we, we see it every day. It's a, it's a marketing trick. You know, we don't trust it. Buy one, get one free isn't really free. And so I looked back at the, at the origins of free as marketing, and that started you know, in, in the late 1800s um, with the notion of giving away one thing to sell another. First, it was giving away recipe, recipe books for Jell-O to sell, to drive demand for Jell-O. Then it was giving away razors to sell blades and so on. That's, that's not a new economic model. That's just, you know, comes out of one pocket or the other. It's you paying sooner or later. What happened in the digital era is that we had an underlying, an underlying medium where the cost of providing products costs almost nothing. The, you know, the, the, to provide a, a page or to run some software online not only costs almost nothing today, but it falls in price by 50% every year, thanks to Moore's Law and all that. That, is, that introduces a new form of free. Now it's not a trick. It's not you paying. You, know, you use Google every day, but it probably doesn't show up in your credit card statement. And that, that introduces the possibility, as we move things from atoms to bits, from, from physical goods and services to software, of invoking free as often as possible to get the largest audience while still being able to make money because the costs are so low. Hmm. One of the things you say about free <laughs> is that I mean, it can mean a lot of different things, and that you say it has this incredible power to grab our attention and yet also this capacity to raise suspicion. Talk for a moment about that, and maybe one of the stories you could tell is of the interesting difference between uh, the village voice and the onion, a very, very striking parallel story that plays out so differently around the same concept of something being free. Uh, yeah, the, um, in that case, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of quality and free. So we, there's this phrase, you get what you pay for. And there's so many cliches about free that we hear. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, etc. Um, in, in this case, people often ask, well, if it's free, you know, it's probably not any good. And that turns out it, it has entirely to do with your expectations of what that product used to cost or should cost. So if a product was paid, as in the case of the Village Voice, uh, a weekly newspaper in, in, uh, in New York, um, and then becomes free, people think it's of lower quality. But if a product was started free and always remains free, as the onion was, also distributed in, in, you know, in boxes on street corners, people don't have that same presumption of uh, same association between cost and quality. They take it for what it is. We're seeing this, this launch of new, we've seen a whole bunch of new free newspapers, especially in Europe, um, that were aimed for younger audiences. That's because those younger audiences who've grown up online don't, don't think that things that are free must be poor quality. Everything online is free, and they accept them for what they are. 
so this, you know, again, you don't think less of Google as a search engine because it doesn't cost you anything, because you hadn't had your expectations of search being a paid service already set. Hmm. Another really interesting uh, example of of the sort of interesting, complicated psychology that is at play with uh, this matter of low cost versus something being free uh, is uh, told in a story uh, about chocolate, of all things. In fact, I think you're quoting a story from uh, a book called Predictably Irrational, in which you quote the author as saying, zero is not just another price. It turns out zero is an emotional hot button, a source of irrational excitement. And uh, he goes on to explain this with a real-life experiment involving uh, chocolate. Can you tell our listeners about that? This is a fascinating uh, little experiment. So this was a case where you, um, you offer people uh, a different, qual- different chocolates at different prices. I think there was a, there was a, there was a Hershey Kiss, and there was a, a, a Lindt Truffle, etc. From and, Switzerland. Uh, and and the, the question was, um, there were different prices and, and, and different qualities, and the question was, you know, uh, which students would choose which ones? And uh, if I recall this one, I'm going to have to summon it from my memory. Well, I have it right here if you want me to read the specifics. Yeah, would you mind? So, so uh, there were two different kinds of treats, this prized lint truffle from Switzerland and then an ordinary Hershey's Kiss. The lint truffle from Switzerland was 15 cents, an amazing bargain. The Hershey's Kiss, one cent. And so that's how this was first presented as two possible choices. And right, then they lowered each of them by one penny. So then it becomes the uh, truffle is 14 cents, the Hershey's Kiss is free. And, of course, what's interesting about this experiment is how drastically differently people behaved in those two stages of the experiment. So in in the case where they both had a price, um, the the truffle was 15 cents and the kiss was one cent, people uh, people were willing to pay for the truffle. Um, it was, uh, you know, they, they, they saw the connection between the price and quality. But when they lowered each one of them by one cent, the truffle went to 14 cents and the Hershey Kiss went free, they overwhelmingly preferred the, the, the Hershey Kiss. Um, it, economically, it makes no difference. Uh, but the difference between one penny and zero is psychologically night and day. We're irresistibly drawn to free. Hmm. You tell this story at the end of, of talking about... Uh, something called the penny gap, which is, uh, and this chocolate story is a really interesting example of that, how, in a sense, the, the, the big gap is between zero and, and one penny. And in a sense, the challenge of somebody who wants to make money in one respect is how you can get people interested in something, in, in being willing to pay even as little as a penny when there's the possibility that they can have it absolutely for free. Yeah, this, this speaks to the, to the failure of so-called micropayments. Um, one of the fantasies on the Internet has always been that you could charge people just, you know, just a penny for a, you know, for a view of a cartoon or something, that you could you, you know, have this massive volume of a few microcents and it would turn into a big business. It's never worked. And the problem is, is, is not economic, it's psychological. What, what happens when we see a price is we have to think about it. Is it worth it? How much is it worth? Do I really want it? And that, that little flag that goes up, and you know, every time you see a price and it has to be dealt with, is, is what's called a mental transaction cost. It's basically work. We have to think about it. And we <laughs> hate to think about it. You call it at one point the toll, T-O-L-L, the toll of thinking. 
when, when we have to think about this transaction and do a little mental calculating of whether or not this price is fair or, or worth it or something we can afford. Exactly. So the problem with a penny is that it's got all of the mental toll of a real price, but none of the economic benefits of a real price. In other words, it's got the psychological downsides of making you think about it without, without the, the, you know, the, 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 the revenue upsides of something like $10 or $20 or $30. So if you're going to have, have all that psychological baggage of a price, why not just round down to zero, take price right off the table, and sell something else. Give that thing away to drive engagement, demand, attention, reputation, traffic, you name it, and then, and then sell something around it. Maybe you're going to sell in cases. Google, maybe you're selling advertising, or in the case of maybe like a video game, what you're selling is you're upselling, um, you know, the, the, the users to the next level or, you know, subscription models or virtual goods or whatever it is you're selling. Hmm. Uh, from that book, other book we mentioned earlier, Predictably Irrational, you, you quote that author as saying that part of what's going on here is that when something is free, then we uh, feel a certain sense of freedom that we are not risking some kind of a loss. We love that sense of being free of that fear of risk or loss, which is also perhaps part of what drives our, our attractiveness to things being free. Yeah, the, uh, you know, as humans, we are, we are so, we're so motivated by uh, risk reduction and not feeling like, like an idiot. Um, you know, when you buy something, you know, this, this sense of buyer's remorse, um, you know, that, that, that hangover effect you feel afterwards where it's, I really want that, you know, could I afford it? And, uh, you know, it, the thing about free is that it, it, it encourages exploitation, it encourages profligate use, um, because you don't have any of this remorse associated with it. You don't, feel, you don't feel like you've been ripped off when you didn't get it for free. Now, the consequence is that you, you, know, you, you can end up consuming things you didn't actually want. Um, you know, a, uh, a, uh, you can imagine the, uh, you know, the uh, all-you-can-eat meals um, are a perfect example of, of, of that. You'll eat more than you, than, you, than, you, than you intended to because you don't feel like each plate, meal, dish is, uh, you know, has a cost associated with it. So there's definitely a two-sided sword. Hmm. Um, we're drawn to free. We also do stupid things uh, because of free and, and consume things that we wouldn't otherwise want simply because we can't resist the price of zero. I am reminded of, a, of something that uh, my former boss here at the radio station used to say about this particular city in which the station is located. Uh, it, this is, a, in some respects, a, a largely blue-collar uh, city, but with uh, several colleges actually in its midst. So it's an interesting mix. But I remember my uh, my former boss, now deceased, saying that Kenoshans uh, uh, would uh, line up for for headaches if they were free. And uh, what he was trying to say there is that uh, that uh, that the, the, a lot of the folks of this town just love things that are free, and uh, and even free headaches would be attractive to to certain people. And I course don't literally agree with that but it says something about just what you were saying the psychological allure of things being free you know we're we're we're, we're irrational beings in many ways as uh, dan Ariely has pointed out but the fact that 299 the price of 299 works for us you know many of us have been to college we know that 299 is really three dollars and yet we, we're still we still round down to two dollars there these are these are these various tricks now free Free has, has always been, um, you know, has always invoked that psychological hacking of our brains. Um, what's different about the old kind of free, which really was a trick, and really, you know, really 
you know, you were probably going to pay sooner or later. And and this free is that is that 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 um, that sense of regret that. Um, that that uh, that that realization that you've been you know suckered once again doesn't kick in online. When I look at my children online, they expect everything online to be free. Now that's not to say that it, it's going to be free forever, or that it's not also available in a paid version, or they might not someday want to bug me for my credit card so that I can subscribe or whatever for them. But they expect to be able to sample everything for free, and it's not because they're you know, overprivileged or, or entitled, although they may in fact be overprivileged and entitled, but I, but I think this generation in general is simply understands the economics of digital stuff. They understand that the cost of that stuff is near zero, close enough to zero to be able to round down to nothing. And as a result, as a result it can be free without strings attached. Now, at some point, they, uh, they will also understand there's a connection between paying for things and, and, and the true value you get from them. And I suspect they'll be spending more um, you know, online. Um, you know, well, they've certainly been spending more online as they get older, but they may be spending more online than my generation spent on offline stuff when we were their age. Um, but they're going to be doing it because they've sampled things for free, because they've 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 figured out what they really want, rather than just being, you know, suckered into stuff with marketing and trickery. We're speaking with Chris Anderson. His book is Free, the Future of a Radical Price. Just a word more about the psychology of all this. Uh, much of what this is about is the notion of abundance and, uh, and the fact that, that we uh, have to think about how economies interact with abundance. And in your words, just as water always flows downhill, economies flow toward abundance. So in this case, in this new landscape, what is it exactly that is so abundant that is drawing our economies toward it? Um, it, it it's, it's this um, triple play of technologies that the Internet created. Um, now, we know that processing made, you know, the Moore's Law and the invention of the semiconductor made, made computing abundant. So that went from something that you know, used to be in a big glass box in a big company to something you have in your, in your pocket, a computer. You know, your cell phone is the equivalent of a 1970s supercomputer. Um, so that so now we 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 quote unquote waste transistors on all sorts of things, and so you know our computers run all the time, and they're running screensavers, and that's you know we we don't think anything of it. The internet then took that processing and added to it bandwidth and storage. So YouTube is the is, is the is the perfect example of this. YouTube is a is a service that you, that that uses all three processing, bandwidth, and storage to allow you to basically be a broadcaster. You can upload any video you want. Your your children, you know, at the beach. And the whole world can see it if they want. No one, it, it costs nothing. And it is, um, you know, changing the future. Of, it's, it's creating the future of television. We're creating a new form of video content collectively by doing experiments and throwing a lot of stuff out there and seeing, and seeing what works. The only way that can, that can happen is because the underlying cost of, of each one of those, of storing each video and serving it to you, is a tiny fraction of a penny. And whatever it is today, it's going to be half that much a year from now. Google doesn't make any money on YouTube today, but you know, over time, where the audience goes, the advertisers will follow. And Google makes plenty of money on everything else they do, they do and YouTube just increases your, your attachment to the Google network, giving Google more information about, what, about consumer interests that allow them to make even more money where they do sell things, which is to advertisers. So there's, there's an example of, of television having flown, uh, flowed to abundance. We had the, the broadcast model, which was you know, limited channels, and it was very expensive to get on broadca broadcast. Now we have the, 
the, you know, the, the Internet cast model, where there's an infinite number of channels, and television and the audience is flowing towards where the cost is lowest and where the freedom, the other form of free, is greatest. Hmm. Uh, of course, this has come at some cost, uh, this process which at one point you called demonetization. That is, in a sense, taking money, taking cost uh, out of the equation. I mean, it changes things radically. And, and you say that one of the, the, the things that's perhaps a little troublesome or worrisome is, is how this is going to work in terms of demonetization and then remonetization. I mean, if you take money out of everything and there's no money left, well, then, in a sense, nothing happens. Or, I mean, everything starts to, to, to shrivel. Maybe you can put that better than I just did. What is that balance between demonetization and remonetization? And uh, what is it about that which, which makes some people right in the heart of this uh, a little bit worried about the current yeah, the, situation? The best, exam- the best example of this, of course, is newspapers. Um, you know, what we've done with newspapers is, um, you know, with, with competition, and that competition is not just, you know, the Internet's infinite variety of information, but also competition for classifieds with Craigslist. We are demonetizing parts of the newspaper industry. Their classified revenues are falling. They're traditional. Um, Display ad revenues are falling. Their print subscriber rolls are falling, all because of competition. Um, for every for every billion dollars of market cap that Craigslist, um, you know, takes out of the out of the newspaper industry, and I use that phrase guardedly since they're not actually taking it out themselves. But but the money the money's you know the market cap is going down. Craigslist you know the classified you know, audience is moving to things like Craigslist. Well, that money is being that money is being diverted, in a sense. Being, it, well, what's happening is it's it's. It's kind of disappearing in a funny way. It's not like it goes from the newspapers to Craigslist. So the, the newspapers lose a billion dollars of market cap, and Craigslist makes maybe a million dollars of money, just enough to pay their, pay their server bills, really. It's a small company, about 40 people. Um, so it's not, like, it's not like the money flows from one company to the other. The money sort of vaporizes. And, and the question is, well, where does it go? And, you know, the simple answer is it is distributed to all of us in some weird way that we can, it's hard to measure. So we all save a little money, those of us who use classifieds, we, by, by going with free classifieds on Craigslist. We save a little money by not spending it with the newspapers. We might get a better experience. We might sell the product faster or at a higher price because Craigslist is a more efficient market. And, um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know and, and these pennies that we've all... We've all sort of uh, you know, accumulated in savings and, and greater prices may or may not add up to what the newspapers lost. We don't know yet. It's impossible to measure. Now, over time, the newspapers are going to have to find a new model, and that's true for media as, uh, as a whole. And you know, so right now, with the first wave is to sort of say, whoa, okay, the money disappears. It goes in some place we can't measure, you know, desperate times. And then we figure out what is it that we do that people still value. You know, is it... Is it is it all the news or just the community news? Is it you know was it does is it the paper form or do they just would they, would they rather have it online? And once we figure out what it is we do that people still value, then we have to build you know a, a business model that can support that, and that's the remonetization um, you know step. And we're not there yet, and that is the problem with with free, is that because the digital economics make it so easy for other people to, to compete with you at zero cost. Free tends to take money out of a market before we figure out the business models built on free to bring it back in. So it's very destructive. It can be very destructive. It can be very bumpy. 
you can sort of, you know, you can collapse before you reform. And that's why there's so much fear about free out there right now. Right. Well, and not just from, you know, grandpas and grandmas and, for that matter, 49-year-olds like me who find a lot of this a bit bewildering, but even for someone like Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, you say this is the paradox that worries Schmidt. We could be at a moment where the short-term negative consequences of demonetization are felt before the long-term positive effects which would be of, I guess, re-monetization. And you go on to say it's important to Google that there are lots of winners because part of why Google thrives is that there's all this great information out there that they help us sort through. But if all of that starts to go away, uh, then in a sense Google has a lot less to do <laughs> or, or, or Google itself is going to be a lot less valuable to us if... if uh, if nothing on the internet is worth searching for, in a sense. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, Google, Google, you know, lives not. I mean, parasitically is not the right word, but you know, Google, Google, you know, gets it, it's able to give you good search results because other people have created that information. Google doesn't create it itself. Other people create that information for a number of reasons. Amateurs create it for incentives like reputation and attention and expression. But professionals like me make it do it for money. Now, if 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 we Demonetize professional media before we remonetize it, and you know, and much of the of the traditional, you know, information and content that's produced by institutions just disappears. Then we're going to then then Google's results will be less relevant, and Google will make less money, etc. So you know, we can all see the problem. Well, and and beyond the solution, and of course, beyond the problems for Google are the problems for us as a society. I mean, that for instance, (laughs) if if all of our newspapers go out of business and we don't have journalists doing the work of a free press, uh, that that's a really scary world. I mean, it's it's scary to think about how that reshapes our democracy. You know, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is that the newspaper industry is going to get smaller. It's not going to go to zero. All the newspapers aren't going to go away, but we will have fewer newspapers. And we're going through this shakeout. We're trying to figure out, okay, what, you know, all of our jobs are the same. We have to add value to the Internet. The Internet is kind of a given. You know, that it, it, is, it is where the audience is. It's where the information is. And the question is, what can we do that the Internet isn't already doing that people will value? Now, you know, in the 20th century, we, the media business, we had monopolies. We had, you know, some of them were licensed monopolies in the case of broadcast licenses like, like, like you have. Others were, you know, de facto monopolies in the sense that, you know, it's very hard to start a newspaper and distribute it across the, place, across the town, and maybe only one or two can do it. Um, we lost that monopoly. The Internet broke the monopoly in all, in all dimensions. And that's, you know, what's happening is just chaos. Um, you know, it's, it's, we are trying to figure it out. None of us has the answers. It's, um, you know, you're seeing companies, uh, you know, collapse. Um, and other companies reforming. And, you know, this is understandably traumatic <laughs> for everybody involved. It's not actually a decision that we made. Uh, anybody said, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's throw the media industry into, into disarray. It's simply what a powerful new medium with its own industrial logic, with its own economic, economic model does. It's, it's you know, it, you know the, the economics of digital distribution came in, and it's like, you know what, um, it doesn't cost anything to get access to the internet. You know, uh, to, to to publish something online. It doesn't cost anything to, to to read that information online. Therefore, lots of people are going to do it. Therefore, you're going to get this explosion of new competition, and it's going to all shake out. And yeah, you know, we are ten years into that, and I suspect it'll be another ten years before we see the the patterns emerge. And our hope is that we, as media institutions, who did so well in the last century, will find a path 
to the next century where we can do even better. Uh, one of the things that's uh, valuable about your book is that you examine many different facets of this. And uh, I want you to just take a moment, if you would, and talk about the video game business, because you talk of how no business is racing to free faster than the video game business. What are they doing that maybe is uh, going to be a, a helpful model for, uh, for others trying to make sense of all this? So I'm fascinated by video games because it is, it is a big medium. A big uh, that is, you know, that, that we you know, discount at our, uh, at our peril. It's, it's about the size of Hollywood in terms of its overall economic impact. And obviously it dominates people's time, especially, you know, y- younger people. So what's happening with that business is that they're shifting from a, a packaged goods business where they you know, buy a game in a store for $50, for $50 to an online business. And as it does so, the same thing that happened with music is happening with games. Um, we're giving up the silver disc, you know, the CD or the DVD, and we're switching to a free-to-play model. Music did that. You gave up on the, on, on the CD, and now, and now you know, a, a generation found ways to download music uh, for free. Now, some, that's called piracy, and we can talk about that in another context, but it, it was nevertheless free became the, the, the starting price for music. With games, free-to-play is, is now the default mode for, as games move online. This happened first in Asia and China and Korea, and is now moving online here. And if you have kids, you know Club Penguin or Neopets or Webkins. Second Life, um, you know, my, my kids are playing something called RuneScape. Um, it, it, it typically, the, you know, it, you see the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the flash games, the casual games, the iPhone games, etc. Um, all of these, as they move online, because you're now distributing bits and not atoms in the, in the form of plastic disks, you can invoke free. And what they're doing is, it, is, is they all start with free, and then as you play, they find ways to upsell you uh, to pay. Uh, so you might at some point be uh, well, you know be asked to subscribe for you know to get more features, or you might need to buy a you know some you know some buy some virtual assets so you can have more status, or you can buy a teleportation stone so you can get someplace quicker. And and you know in every one of these games, what you're seeing is the the psychology of free being invoked. It's you know you don't have to pay to 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 play. You don't have to pay to get in the door. But over time, as you become more and more engaged. They're finding a way to get 10% of the audience, maybe 15% of the audience, to start paying in a way that doesn't feel like they're having their arm twisted. Um, if your children come to you, if your children are playing P- Club Penguin and come to you and say, I want to buy a gift, or I want to buy a better, a, better, uh, a better shirt from my penguin, I want to buy a pet from my penguin, Dad, can I have your credit card? That's freemium at work. That's the free and premium equation kicking in. And uh, it's incredibly successful for Disney, who now owns uh, Club Penguin. And you're seeing that this model on your iPhone um, apps and um, your casual games becomes the default mode for the games industry. Free becomes the default price. And then the question is, for each game, what's a clever way to get some people over time, especially the ones who love the game, who are really engaged, to start paying money? Much better than the model forcing them to pay $50 up front, like it or not, or the advertising model, which is which is which is you know prone to the uh, ebbs and flows of advertising, you know uh, uh, the advertising industry. This is one where people are paying for what they value most, and it's actually a much healthier model for games. Hmm. That and much more explored in this book called "Free: The Future of a Radical Price." It's published by Hyperion. Chris Anderson, I thank you so much for joining me on the morning show. This has been very interesting. Pleasure. Thanks so much for the great questions.